Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, once again, I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. How is it going, guys? Fabulous. Amazing. Good, 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 good. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday. We just watched a great day of uh, college football yesterday. Um, is Alabama this year possibly the greatest college football team of all time? Uh, possibly, but I don't know. I'm still not sure they've really actually faced a good offense. It's a valid point. Like, Clemson is now just decided, we're going to put 70 on everybody, and we'll see what happens in the playoff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But let's keep loading up ACC teams in the top 25, because, you know, since Clemson's in the conference, everybody has to be good, right? Oh, yeah, Virginia, totally top 25 team. Totally. Yeah. Did I see Syracuse and Boston College are now in the top 15, too? That's ridiculous. That that's is true. ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But we're not here to talk about sports. We're here to talk about movies, and we're going to be getting to that in a second. But first, we started something last podcast, and we decided we have to keep it going. And we have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, our, uh, our latest segment is inspired by the Husker Doc Talk podcast. Todd and I are big Nebraska fans. The only one of us that isn't is the one that's actually closest to Nebraska. Uh, but Todd and I are faithful now, was that a, listeners. Was that dig at me? Well, it, it kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Todd and I are faithful listeners to the Husker Doc Talk podcast, and they always start their podcast with a segment called What Are We Drinking? And that is what we are going to start with once again today. So uh, let's start with Zach. Zach, what are you drinking today? I'm drinking the one and only Free State Beer, Gravitas Sour. Free State Beer, the local brewing company out of none other than Lawrence, Kansas. This is a nice fruity beer with a good aftertaste, a little bit like your peach fuzz beer from the last podcast, Terry. It's giving me a nice little, you know, buzz in the morning. Very nice. Very pleasant. Very nice. (laughs) It's a a step up from the the, uh, bargain bucket uh, wine you had last time. Uh, that's debatable, but, um, sure. (laughs) All right, Todd, what do you got today? Uh, I am sipping on the Ghost Dog Ghost Pepper Whiskey. Uh, it's a little spicy, but it is the morning, so it's like a, uh, the whiskey version of a Bloody Mary or something, so that was my rationale. Is this, like, in honor of Ghost Dog, the, uh, Jim Jarmusch film? Uh, I've never seen it, but sure. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't that Forrest Whitaker in that or something? Yeah, it's a really good movie. All right, I'll so for me out. today, I have um, I have a Pelican Brewing uh, beer out of uh, out of Tillamook, Oregon. Uh, it is uh, November, which means we have holiday beers coming out, and I usually tend to stay away from holiday beers. Uh, I had a bad experience, but. Um, this one... I think we've and, all been there. Yeah, yeah. You guys all know about the bad experience. We will never taste burr again. 
Um, <laughs> unless someone loses a bet badly. Unless someone badly loses a bet. But this one's actually pretty good. It's called their Bad Santa Cascadian Dark Ale. And, uh, yeah. Pretty good. Pretty good. Nice and smooth. And, and the Bad Pelican, Santa and Ghost Dog. Yeah. We the Pelican to is wearing a, a Santa hat, which is pretty nice. So, uh, yeah. All right. So, cheers. Here, here. Well, as always, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Uh, make sure you tell others about our podcast any way you can, either word of mouth, tell them online, uh, rate, review, subscribe, so that everyone can uh, can hear more about our podcast uh, whenever they can. We are going to hop into our movie review for this week. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie reviews. And our movie review is uh, is of a film that we were pretty excited about going into uh, because of who is behind it. It is the uh, writing and directorial debut of one Jonah Hill. So, Todd, why don't you tell us about mid-90s? Okay, mid-90s was my most anticipated movie of the year because it had the best trailer of the year, I think. And I love actors directing movies, and this movie did not disappoint. Like, once I, after I saw it, I texted Zach, Fuck, fuck. That was dope. Because, <laughs> as a quote of the movie, obviously. Uh, the movie is about Stevie, a troubled outcast 13-year-old kid in L.A. 1990s. And he's he sort of struggles with his home life, his abusive older brother and his protective mother, and he has no friends. Uh, he meets a group of skaters at a skate shop, and he befriends them. He starts hanging out with them, he tries to get integrated into their culture, and tr- tries to learn how to skate. Uh... Sonny Soljic is the main character, and he's a real-life skater, but he does a really good job of making it him look kind of pathetic at it. Uh, he's really good at expression. He was also in that movie, uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, uh, recently. Uh, if he wants to be, he could be a great actor for a long time. Uh, Stevie is sort of a, a troubled kid. He's, he's into self-harm, so it makes a lot of things like kind of disturbing to watch. He hates his life and his decisions, and so he like punishes himself when his older brother doesn't do it for him. Uh, the other skaters are really good, uh, particularly this guy, Nikkel Smith, who plays Ray, the leader of the group. He's just He seems like a really natural screen presence, and he's actually my best supporting actor winner as of right now. Uh, then there's Ruben and Fourth Grade. It's like a really good group of like young, non-professional actors. It reminds uh, a lot of people, they say, of Larry Clark's kids, which, uh, I mean, I understand. Like, the kids, they, they drink, they smoke, they, get, they fool around, get in trouble with the cops. Uh, the movie is based on the real-life experience of Jonah Hill, so it makes everything really seem authentic and legitimate in that way. Uh, there aren't really a ton of skating scenes. It's more about like getting uh, the the allure of the culture. the The music is outstanding. The soundtrack and and the score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Uh, it's funny at times, but it's also tragic. I wasn't a huge fan of the soft ending, but I, at the same time, I don't really know how how it would have been marketed otherwise if it was just like a really depressing movie all the way through. 
uh, A24 did a really got good job at uh, releasing it and giving it like a semi-wide release. Uh, it's not the best wave of the year, but it but it was really good and it shows excellent potential for structure down the line. I think for for Jonah Hill as a filmmaker, I give it three oh, and a half stars. You were waiting to get that one in. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> so. So uh, three and a half stars from Todd. Uh, I'm giving this three stars. I thought it was a very good movie. I was entertained throughout. Uh, like Todd said, you can tell Jonah Hill definitely has some uh, some potential as a writer director. However, you could also tell that this was his uh, his first attempt at it. As I felt it was a little too rough around the edges. Uh, it had a chance to be great, and it settled for just being good. Um, but. Everything you said, I, I agree with. the The characters were were believable. There was definitely a uh, a good amount of nostalgia in there. Looking back at the mid '90s, especially, I mean, whatever Lucas Hedges was wearing at any particular time was just amazing. Um, and it was nice to see him play something that wasn't just like a slight derivative of what he played in Manchester by the Sea. It feels like this is the first time he's really stepped out and done something a little different. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I was, uh, I was entertained throughout. Um, I was hoping for a little bit more, but that doesn't change the fact that what was there was good. So yeah, three stars from me. Zach, what did you think? Well, um, you know, when you watch this movie, it's, um, it, it was a weird experience watching it because it reminded me a little bit of Far From Heaven in a way, because it was a movie set in a time period and the way that, it, it the way the story was and the way that it looked was so accurate and so eerie and uncanny that you would almost mistake it for a film from that time period, you know? Like, when you're watching, like, Dope. I mean, Dope is clearly a movie made in this era about, the you know, the 90s. But this movie is, like, set in the 90s and is the 90s. Like, Far From Heaven was 1957. So, I mean, that's the first thing that jumps off the page for me is just how accurate Jonah Hill got it. I mean, from the from the desaturated colors, the 16-millimeter film stock, and, like, the 4 four by 3 aspect ratio, and just the, I don't know, you know, the, the, the mood and the lighting, and, of course, things like the clothes and the props and stuff like that. Like, it's, it's an incredible, like, achievement, accomplishment to make this film feel so 1990s. And, and sometimes it was so overwhelming that I really didn't even follow the story much or the characters. I just was like much more into the mood and the atmosphere and the visuals of it. So that being said, uh, I'm afraid I do, I, I'm not quite as enthusiastic about it as Todd is. Um, for me, it's a solid three-star film. Uh, I, I like the character development in it, and I think these are potentially interesting characters, but um, I wish that the movie had gone a little bit deeper with them. It sort of, like, introduces a bunch of them, and there's this sort of, like, uh, you know, ungainly crew that we're meant to kind of love, and it feels a lot like a Larry Clark film, but it feels like Larry Clark light. You know, like, Larry Clark has, like, consequences for the horrible, deranged things that his characters do. It's like Jonah Hill wanted to make this film a little bit more like, I don't know, maybe audience friendly. So like when you see the, the consequences of their actions at the end of the movie in this kind of culminating, you know, catastrophic event, well, you know what? It, it's kind of like, it's not as bad as it actually looks. And you know what? Everyone's kind of okay in the end. Like that is so antithetical to like what Larry Clark did in like bullies or bully, excuse me, and kids. And even like What's Up Rockers, you know, there's a real dark, under, there's a real dark uh, energy 
energy in his films that this movie kind of avoided. And as a result, I felt like it was more audience friendly and more nostalgic. And I really wish that it had been a little bit more cutthroat and um, I don't know, uh, biting in, in, in its in its approach. Um, I remember growing up in the 90s, I hated skater kids. I thought they were like sophomoric and uh, very machismo and, and I really hated that. So that's certainly like um, it has has made me feel you know it made me feel a certain way about the characters so maybe it, it, it was a barrier for me to f- fully embrace any of the characters with the possible exception of ray um but as again as a set piece as an experiment you know showing the 1990s like you know visually and in terms of the props and the design and the scenery uh it's it's a remarkable achievement i just wish the story had 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 kind of matched that energy um so for me it's it's a it's a three-star film it's worth checking out um i just wish it had gone a little bit deeper yeah, like, like I was saying, I, I agree about the ending. Really, just sort of makes it a little. It, it just makes it a little too soft. But, but I, I feel like if it had gone like full on low budget indie '90s movie style, and made it, and made it that dark, I don't. I feel like we might not have even seen the movie. It, it probably would have been way too small, or it just would have been like a Netflix movie or something. Well, that's the direction you should have taken it, though. Like, who cares? Like, clearly, this is not a movie that's going to make millions of dollars. I mean, this is a passion project by Jonah Hill, you know? So instead of... Uh, the, the, the message of the movie that it leaves in my mouth is like, hey, the 90s were great. Skater kids weren't really that bad. They were very inclusive. And, you know, they did they drank and they did drugs and they did horrible things. But, you know, hey, it was still fun back in the day. And I don't... That's not the right message, Jonah Hill. I, I, you know, Larry Clark didn't have that message. You shouldn't have it either, you know? Like, like have more have more precision with these characters, mate make them have consequences for their actions i mean they're drinking and they're smoking the whole movie like okay i get that you know you want to like show this friendly environment but like come on man this is the real world you know you of all people jonah hill should know that you're a socially conscious person you know i don't know yeah well i it was it was like jonah hill's love letter to to skate culture i mean because it is based on his personal experience so he he adores all that stuff so that's why he probably made it a little glossier than it should have been well, last last podcast we had talked about how Harmony Kareen was in this episode and or was in the movie and I texted Todd like where was Harmony Kareen in this movie? Do you know Terry? I couldn't find him anywhere. I have no clue. I'd completely forgotten that we had mentioned that. Yeah, I never heard his the name Todd. So I I I think that he was at the at that one skate event where where uh like for Ray, but that's that's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> Was he maybe the guy that was, like, sleeping with his mom that awkwardly came out of her bedroom in that one scene? (laughs) That could be. That guy kind of looked like Richard Linklater, actually, but I don't think it was. Okay, the one thing that that bothered me is that the... Like, this takes place over, like, a summer, right? So so. So they start the summer playing Super Nintendo and, like, like the, the game the game cartridges of Super Nintendo were like currency in Stevie's house, right? Like he was trading games with his brother in order to get stuff. Then by the end of the movie, they're sitting there playing PlayStation. I mean, what the heck is that? Continuity, man. I know. That is total discontinuity. That was the one thing that I'm like, wait, no, they were just playing Super Nintendo before. What's up with this? Where did the PlayStation come from? 
I don't know. At this point, I think the 90s might be overdone a little bit. I mean, I also thought, you know, the, the, the whackness that Ben Kingsley movie was set in the 90s and Landline. And I don't know. I think I, I think the 90s, you know, we're, we're ripe for nostalgia for the 90s, I guess. But maybe it's not the right era that filmmakers should be fixated on right now. Well, it's just like how in the 90s so much stuff was set in the 70s. I mean, it's it's kind of a similar... Yeah, it's a whole generation of filmmakers making their childhood movies, basically. Yeah. But it I sounds will like... Say, oh, go ahead. I will, I will say I did really like Fourth Grade's film, though. And I almost wish that that had been the film rather than mid-90s. Because I really liked that, and that would have been fun to watch. And I like how it was a fourth, fourth grade production. And that's what Jonah Hill should name his production company if he ever has one. Totally should. That'd be awesome. Well, it sounds like uh, some of us are a little more uh, more keen on it than, than others. Todd really lo- loved it. Um, Zach and I saw, saw its value, but uh, also thought it could have been better. So uh, three stars, three and a half stars. Either way, uh, if you get a chance, go out and see mid-90s, especially if you are a child of the 90s. Uh, there is definitely some stuff in there that you will really appreciate. All right, let's move on from uh, from mid '90s and into our spotlight segment. Spotlight. Uh, our spotlight segment is going to be focusing on a filmmaker that has their new film coming out this weekend. It's uh, I think it's going to be number one in the box office this weekend, and that is. Uh, Brian Singer's Bohemian Rhapsody, the story of uh, Freddie Mercury and Queen. So we're going to look back on uh, Brian Singer's greatest accomplishment. And that was The Usual Suspects from 1995. Uh, Directed by uh, Brian Singer, written by, wasn't it written by Christopher McQuarrie? Yes. Correct. So... We are going to look at The Usual Suspects, and we are going to try and recast the remake. If they were to make Usual Suspects today, what would that cast look like? So, I know uh, Todd and I are huge fans of this film. Um, Zach, not so much. But uh, So, Zach, I'm going to go to you first uh, to talk a little bit about this and give, give us your, uh, your writer-director for, uh, for your remake of The Usual Suspects. All right, well, The Usual Suspects and I have a very long and and tortured history. Um, I've never liked this film. I've always thought it was one of the most overrated movies, not just of the 90s, but arguably of all time. Um, It's like in the top 25 of IMDb. Um, I've never really gotten into it at all i've i've tried maybe it's that when i first saw it i wasn't paying attention to it i've I've never fully been able i i could not pass an exam about the plot of this movie because one it's so complicated and two i usually tune out at around the 25 minute mark um i think the whole like final twist ending is you you can see that coming a mile away i don't know why people are so blown away by it and frankly if you really think about who Kaiser Shoujo really is, and I guess we can give, like, spoiler alert because this movie's 23 years old. Like, there's no way it could be Kevin Spacey. Like, let's get real. He's going to put himself in, in, in harm's way and be taken in by the custody and, and very nearly, you know, arrested and put in prison. Like, there's no way if he's this criminal mastermind genius that he would let himself be that vulnerable. Um, I just don't buy it at all. I don't buy the movie. I don't like it at all. So if I'm going to remake it, I'm, we're going a whole different direction, okay? And, uh, well, you'll, you'll kind of see with my cast what direction I went with. But 
But um, because this is a movie that was made in the mid-90s, uh, this movie is going to be directed by Jonah Hill and, cinem- and photographed by Fourth Grade. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Uh, Todd, who do you have as your writer-director combo? Uh, well, I actually love the movie, so I made it more what it would be like or more similar to what it is now like uh and so i went with uh, a director that i like that doesn't really make a lot of movies that's andrew dominic he made like killing them softly and the assassination of jesse james and chopper uh i i i like he's he's done crime dramas before and that would definitely get plan b involved and so i could get a lot bigger cast (laughs) wow todd's all about getting the budget here that that's that's nice that's nice what is this guy's name Andrew Dominic. Ah, okay. So for me, what I'm going with is uh, I'm looking at uh, an up-and-coming uh, writer-director, just like Brian Singer was was this up-and-coming director at the time, to take this on. Someone who usually has, uh, has dabbled in kind of fantasy sci-fi, but I think could really bring a really cool grittiness an edge to uh, to a remake of The Usual Suspects. So my writer-director is Alex Garland. Uh, he is the one that was behind films like Ex Machina and Annihilation. Uh, I think he would really bring an interesting uh, an interesting take to this and, uh, and definitely give it... I, I feel like he'd be... I was trying to think of who is like the Brian Singer of right now. And, uh, and Brian Singer ended up winning... Or no, he was... The screenplay was won for this, right? The screenplay right. one for Usual Suspects. But anyways, this really put Brian Singer on the map, and Alex Garland has kind of been put on the map with those first two films. But this would definitely uh, be something that could he could use as a jumping-off point for him. So Alex Garland is my writer-director. So Zach, let's start with. Oh, this is a good question, Todd. Who should we start with? Uh, probably. Uh, Detective Kuyan. Okay, so let's start with Detective Kuyan. Uh, originally brought to us by Chaz Palminteri, uh, the detective behind it all, trying to figure out what is going on. Zach, who is your Detective Kuyan? And I want to add just a couple other notes that I forgot when I was trashing the film before. Um, <laughs> this is a film that you know Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey. Okay, yeah, we're not putting them near you know underage underage uh, boys uh, again. So let's you know I couldn't have fourth grade as the as a cinematographer on this film, but um, this film beat out some great films that were nominated for best screenplay in '95. Um, <clears throat> So uh, it's it's a shame that it won. And my relationship with this film is like Elaine with The English Patient. I feel like I've had to watch this film dozens and dozens of times, and I hate it still. Okay, moving on, though. I will recast it. And uh, Detective Kujan, who, by the way, I didn't even remember that character's name until Todd told me, um, I'm having recast as Viola Davis, because anything Viola Davis does uh, makes it better. So she would be awesome in this role. That's a great choice. I really like that. I could see it. Maybe I, I don't know how Viola Davis would fit into a fourth grade production, but uh, but other oh, than she that, could be, she could be she could be in anything. <laughs> uh, all right, Todd, Detective Kuyan, who do you got? All right, well this this uh, role is one that I think if you're actually trying to make it as similar to the movie as possible, there's only one option 
the person who would be cast and who should be cast because he's played this type of character a million times, and that's Kyle Chandler. No. That, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one, too. That's a good one. Or Mark Ruffalo. I, I was thinking that, too, the other day, but Kyle Chandler is... is See, that's answer. where I thought your most obvious one was, was Mark Ruffalo, because basically it's the same role as he had in Now You See Me. Oh. Which sure. is sort of like the same movie as this movie, except maybe even worse. Except not. <laughs> your, your hatred for this movie is ridiculous, Zach. Uh, Sorry, I'll show any, Anyways... <laughs> Anyway, so my uh, my detective Kuyan. So first off, with my recasting, <coughs> one of the things I looked at is I looked at uh, the original cast and who was in it. And we had, you know, I had Stephen Baldwin, Gabriel Byrne, Benicio del Toro, Kevin Pollock, Kevin Spacey, Chaz Palminteri, Pete Postlethwaite. I mean, these are the guys that we're going to be recasting, and a lot of those names we know, but at the time we didn't. I mean, a lot of them were kind of known as, uh, oh yeah, that's that one guy from, or that, oh yeah, he, he was that one guy that was in this. So that's kind of what I went with with my casting. In fact, po- possibly the biggest name of the cast at that point was Chaz Palminteri. He's coming off an Oscar nomination for Bullets Over Broadway, and this was his follow-up movie, was being Detective Kuyan. So, Postal Thwaite was nominated before this, too. Postal Thwaite was nominated as well. But it's interesting that the only guys that actually had had any recognition were, like, the ancillary pieces, the guys that were the afterthoughts in the cast. But, um, anyway, so Chaz Palminteri's role, Detective Kuyan, uh, I saw this was, like, the biggest name of the group uh, in this role. It's kind of the one that centers it and keeps the plot moving. And if I'm having Alex Garland write and direct it, then Detective Kuyan has to be Oscar Isaac, because he is kind of his boy. I mean, he was he had a small a small part in Annihilation. He was one of the focal points of Ex Machina. Um, so Oscar Isaac is my Detective Kuyan. What nationality is the name Kuyan? I was trying to figure that out. I I don't know. What nationality is Oscar Isaac? That kind of fits. Guatemalan. <laughs> yeah, that's why. That's why. It's, that's a good choice, just because <laughs> he could. He could be anything. He really could. Okay. Ethnic type. That's probably what it said in the screenplay. So next, we are gonna go with uh, Verbal Kint, uh, the role originally brought to us by Kevin Spacey. The walking spoiler alert. Uh, Zach, who is your uh, your Verbal Kint? Listen, Verbal Kent is one of the most pathetic characters in all the movies. I mean, this guy, you know, walks in, you know, with his stupid limp, and he, not to not to demean people that actually have disabilities, but, like, you know, he's like a kid who looks guilty, he's been caught, he just, the, the expression on his face is just so stupid, I really want to punch him, maybe I just want to punch Kevin Spacey. I, I think that's really um, what we're seeing here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just this whole movie I want to punch. Um, But you know what? I'm thinking like an actor that can convey manipulation, uh, an actor who's contemptible, an actor that you just want to get your hands on and, you know, give him a good, uh, you know, know, just just, uh, mess with him because you're so disturbed by them. And that actor to me is Allison Williams. Okay, maybe, you know what? Like, you know, get out. She was so contemptible in that movie. She's an evil genius, you know? And uh, if we're talking about evil geniuses, she, as Verbal Kent, could nail it. Oh, you just want to strangle her. That's what I'm saying. Okay. You are definitely taking this in a different direction. You're like making making the, the Ocean's 8 of, uh, of usual you know suspects what? here. 
I'm maybe I am Terry. That might be the direction I'm going down. Believe it or not, very astute. I mean, if you have a movie that was originally run by Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey, why not? Why not flip it completely on its head? No kidding. All right, Todd, who's your verbal kint? Okay, well, the thing about verbal kint is that he's supposed to be Hungarian, and I never really understood why Kevin Spacey was playing that part, but <laughs> he's, he's awesome in it anyway. But I think, I think trying... that's more of just the legend of the of the of the the legend of the persona, more than anything. Okay, that's well, what I that's how I took it. The legend of the persona. Either way, I went with uh, an actor who I think would play that like really pathetic character in the police station a lot, like pretty easily. And he just was in a movie with Kyle Chandler recently, and that's Casey Affleck. I I feel like he like that like that type of personality is something that he would nail. And uh, yeah, so that's body movements. I I don't know if he could be a super like villain or anything like that, but he could play that character. Alright. So, again, I, I, my casting is, is looking at kind of what these guys were when it, when it originally happened, and Kevin Spacey, before he won an Oscar for, uh, for Usual Suspects, had very little on his resume. He, I mean, he had Glengarry, Glen Ross, and, like, Working Girl were her, were her, yeah, Swimming with Sharks. There wasn't much there. And and he was definitely one of those guys that you would look at and say, oh, he was that one guy that was in. And uh, so I went with, I tried to find some small time guys that this could be their big break because this was the big break for everyone in the cast. So my, uh, my verbal kint, I actually really like this one. My verbal kint is Robin Lord Taylor, which you guys probably haven't heard of before. However, he is currently playing Oswald Cobblepot, which is also Penguin in the Gotham TV show. And he is, uh, if you've ever seen it, you realize that he does an amazing job at basically being a verbal kint. This guy who is pathetic and just this wuss that's not really able to stand up to anything, but turns out to be this menacing mastermind in the end. Uh, so... Robin Lord Taylor is my verbal kint. Robin Lord Taylor. I, I like the name. Yeah, and if, like and if you've never game. seen Gotham, you, you need to watch it. at least one episode to see how good he is in this, in this show. We'll take your word for it. Okay. So, next we have Keaton. Originally brought to us by Gabriel Byrne. Uh, Zach, which female are you casting here? Oh, well, you're, you're ahead of me. I don't know how you knew that. Um, but uh, I went with... I feel like Keaton's the most glamorous character in the movie. He wears these nice dapper suits, and he's in this big, you know, fancy dining hall when he gets arrested. And, you know, it's uh, just a sort of a, 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 a BS-type character. So I went with someone who could portray that uh, regality. And the only person I could really think of was Kate Blanchett. I mean, she was in Ocean's 8. She's going to be in this movie, too. Kate Blanchett. Keaton. Okay. Todd, Keaton. Alright. Uh, Keaton uh, is the character that I always like, I, I think it's kind of obvious throughout the, the movie that they want you to think that he's that, that he's uh, the main guy, the main bad guy, but he's sort of the leader of the group, he's the oldest one. And 
I was uh, I was uh, kind of circling around Eric Bana, but I kind of wanted a comeback role for Jason Patrick. I, I feel like that's like that'd be a really good role for him, and he hasn't he hasn't done anything like that in a long time, so that's who I chose. Once again, I like mine best. So for Keaton, I thought this was one of the one of the harder ones to uh, to cast because I really liked Gabriel Byrne in this care in this role because uh, he's he's got such a look to him that just defined the character. Um, the, just this guy who just looked weary. He could act so well with his face. You know, you, he didn't have to say much and you already knew what that character was thinking and what he was all about. And so finding someone that could portray that in the way Gabriel Byrne did was kind of hard. Uh, the one I eventually went with is Sterling K. Brown. Uh, I thought uh, he would be a, he'd be really good at this. One of the reasons is because he is so good at uh, portraying emotion simply with his face. I thought he would be a great one that could really look, um, portray that ringleader of the group and, uh, and rally all the troops to him. So Sterling K. Brown is my Keaton. I can oh. see it. So next, Although I think he'd be a better Kuyan, but I think he'd be a better verbal. Uh, he's a. I think he's a little too. Uh, a, he's a little too intense to be verbal. Verbal has to be pathetic. And Jason Patrick isn't pathetic, as you talk about no. his movie career for the last twenty years, where he's done nothing. We're talking about Sterling K. Brown, dude. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. We. I'm sorry. I got the picks confused. Sorry. It's this gravitas sour beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, just, just blame, blame it on the what? All right. Uh, <laughs> next, we're gonna go with McManus. McManus was originally brought to us by Stephen Baldwin. Uh, Zach, where are you going with McManus, the hothead of the group? Uh, yeah, honestly, this was the one character that I had no familiarity with at all. I look at the cover, I see Stephen Baldwin there. I don't remember that character at all. So I'm just going with an actress I really like, uh, Constance Wu. She was great in Crazy Rich Asians. Um, she'd be awesome in this role. I, 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 I hope. <laughs> I'm going with Constance <laughs> That's Wu. That's a terrible choice. <laughs> that is the worst choice possible. <laughs> hey, I want to see her in more stuff, you know? I mean, this and Fresh Off the Boat and Crazy Rich Asians, that's it. She needs more credits in her name yes no, nothing screams hothead <laughs> like constance Wu. <laughs> i don't even remember oh, them. what do you mean he's a hothead aren't they all hotheads that's why no they're no 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 no, no 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 not quite like mcmanus mcmanus was the one that was just flying off the deep end at any at any point yeah no no all, all you got to remember what i constantly thought of in this was the lineup scene it's like who could i see doing that doing that lineup scene as all these different characters and he's yeah. the one that like totally freaked out in the lineup scene and and so yes that will be constance Wu apparently todd redeem this whole thing uh <laughs> And quickly. So, so I, I didn't really think the lineup scene when I was looking at these characters. I was thinking when they're first getting interrogated. And the one one uh, char- one pr- actor I thought I would be awesome just looking up and uh, at the cop and being like, oh. I, I thought was uh, uh, Jesse Plemons. I, I think he would be perfect in that kind of role. I, he and, and plus I love seeing him in everything. So. I think he'd be an awesome McManus. <laughs> that, that's a good one. That's a good one. 
The one I went with, uh, I I really like him, and I may, maybe I chose him just because he kind of looks like Stephen Baldwin. But um, but again, Stephen Baldwin, he was known basically as the other Baldwin brother at this point. Maybe the other other Baldwin brother, so not really a big star. And this is a guy who needs to become a star quickly. And that is Glenn Powell, uh, who is that one guy who was in Hidden Figures or Everybody Wants Some. Uh, I, I really enjoy everything I see him in, and I think he looks like Stephen Baldwin, and I could see him really having fun digging into a role of a psychopath like this. So I'm going Glenn Powell. All right. Right, right Todd? Don't you think he, he looks like him, but maybe not necessarily the persona you'd want, but... Yeah, I mean, it'd be a step out, but I, I, I could see it. I do like watching him in movies, so... He needs to do more stuff. He seriously does. Okay, so let's move on now. We are moving into... Oh, do Fenster, because that's that's his, McManus's buddy. Okay, so Fenster. Fenster, originally brought to us by uh, Benicio Del Toro. Uh, Zach, who do you have? See, I, I remember Fenster... I, I thought that Fenster was the hothead of the group because he was so crazy. But, I mean, crazy in, like, an indecipherable way. Um... You, you, you really couldn't understand a word he said, but this is true. Right. I actually, th I do think Benicio Del Toro is the best thing about this movie. I would watch a supercut with just the Benicio Del Toro scenes. I think it's tragic. He was tragically underused in this movie, and I, do, I don't know why. He was the most interesting character. Anyway, I went with uh, Uzo Ab Abuda from uh, Orange, is, uh, Orange is the New Black as cra Crazy Eyes. I think she could portray that sort of manic insanity uh, a little bit that, of the character and uh, be probably indecipherable. Now that's a good call. Actually, that would be a better call for McManus. But yes, I can see that that being a good one. You, you, yeah, fi you. you finally got one that worked. Thank you. Hey, you know, <laughs> just throw, th throwing darts blind. That's what I'm doing. All right, Todd Fenster. All right. So for Fenster, I went with my go-to uh, character actor. That's Lakeith Stanfield. I, I think that him and him and uh, Jesse Clemens would be awesome to be this like this group of I mean they're basically like like Jules and Vincent kind of I mean they're the two guys that work together and, and stuff and I think he's he could definitely be that like kind of weird personality and like doesn't really fit in with the rest of the group but he's but he's awesome yeah that that's that's a good call I like I like that call uh, I had a really tough time with Fenster because Benicio del Toro was so memorable, and honestly, it's one of those like super high war performances because I don't see anyone being able to pull off that role quite like Benicio del Toro did. Like so much of that, I think, was just what he brought to it, and like the whole thing of not being un able to understand what he's saying—that was just Benicio del Toro just messing with the role. Um, so I had to find someone, again, Benicio Del Toro was a nobody at this point. He had done barely anything. So I had to find someone that, that's kind of this up-and-comer that needs a, needs a big break. And so my Fenster is someone that uh, has shown that he can be a little crazy, uh, but needs a, needs a bigger platform, and that is Cameron Monaghan. Cameron Monaghan is that one guy in Shameless. He's the red-headed kid from Shameless. He also is uh, the one that plays Joker in the Gotham series. Uh, I think he w he's a guy who um, is, uh, is definitely uh, on his way up. 
He's one that, another thing about Fencer that I've always noticed is he's the tallest of the group. And and Cameron Monaghan's pretty tall. It's a it's kind of a stretch. I don't know if it would necessarily work, but I know he can be crazy and he can be kind of off kilter because of what he's done in Gotham. And so I think it'd be worth a shot. Do you agree that The Usual Suspects would have been a better movie with Finster as the main character? Just say yes. I know you're thinking yes. You I know think, it would be a better movie. I think we like Finster so much because we we wanted more of him. But if we got more of him, he's such a one-tone character. And he has no like arc to his character. That because of that, we, we liked him so much. So I think we got just the right amount because we wanted more. Well, he's the first to die, too, so we, we really don't get that much of him. Exactly, exactly. And because of that, he could be such a, such a character. Okay, moving on, we have Hockney, brought to us by the one and only Kevin Pollock. Zach, who do you have for this? Well, the only thing I remember about Hockney is that he's the shortest one of the group, so I went with a short actor, and uh, I... I feel like Kevin Pollock's a pretty funny actor, so it'd have to be someone who could play comedy. I don't really remember if Hockney's funny or not, so I went with Gina Rodriguez, because she can play funny and serious, and she is diminutive in stature. All of those are true. It doesn't make it a good pick. (laughs) (laughs) Todd. (laughs) Hockney, who do you got? Hockney's first name actually is Todd. Um, oh. So I went with an actor oh. who has played a character you know. named Todd that I like, and plus he would be <laughs> awesome in this role. It'd be, it's Aaron Paul. I I was thinking this one, like, again, in the interrogation scenes, I could just see him sitting there like, really? I live in Queens. Would you put that together <laughs> yourself, or you got a team of monkeys working around the clock on this? I, I think Aaron Paul's just, like, completely I-don't-care... Uh, personality and plus he's the guy who stole the truck and actually got them all arrested i think like he could absolutely live in that role i like it i like it that's a good one i went a slightly different route i i was looking at it kind of similarly to to zach and that this is kind of a comedic role kevin pollock was maybe one of the more established guys at this point i have a feeling everyone was like oh he's that one guy in a few good men Right, he, he's 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 that guy, um, which was kind of the comic relief. He's the one that's the straight shooter in this. He's the shorter one. He's uh he's but he's got the personality. Uh, the guy I went with for uh, Hockney was Kieran Culkin, uh, simply because of that interrogation scene. I could see him sitting there saying that that line of uh, "Oh, really? I live in Queens." <laughs> so I I could see him being that that smart Alec that that uh, can say stuff like that. Um, have a little bit of tough time seeing him as like a mechanic because that's what what Hockney is. But I think he could pull it off. I think it, it could work. Um, but he's he's the mouth of the group and uh, and the uh, the witty one. So I'm going I'm going Karen Culkin. I could kind of see that. I think Aaron Paul is the best one though. That that is a good one. That is a good one. And why couldn't Gina Rodriguez play that though? I mean, you're saying someone who can mouth off and someone who's short, and mechanically minded. I mean, did you see her in Annihilation? All I right. think that she'd steal a truck. <laughs> I yeah, why not? I could see it. See, if you're if you're doing your all female cast, like this would be a great spot for like Aquafina. 
Like I can see Aquafina being a being a good Hockney. Yeah, but well, I don't know. She was in Ocean's Eight, though. You know, I could only have one of the Ocean's Eight actresses in my recast. Oh, okay. So, so it's a rule, self self imposed rule. Self imposed rule on your uh, on your recasting. That's a joke. Uh, <laughs> okay, we got one more to go. <clears throat> And that is the guy who ends up looking like the brains behind it all, but really is just the servant to the brains behind it all. And that is Kobayashi, originally brought to us by the late, great Pete Postlethwaite. Uh, Zach, who do you have as Kobayashi? All right, well, I actually am proud of this pick. In fact, I'm more proud of this pick than any of the other picks on my list. Because if you're going to look for some someone who you suspect might be... Kaiser Shoja, you know, you know that they have a relationship with them. They're, you know, this ominous presence. They talk, you know, they, they, they give threatening warnings to these people. And I thought of Charlotte Rampling. I mean, come on. If Charlotte Rampling is going to come in, she's got that face. She's got that attitude. She is powerful and you're not going to mess with her. And she's shifty and you don't know her motives. Absolutely could play Kobayashi. Miss Kobayashi. She's got that face. I like it. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a really good pick. That actually, I, I can see one. that. I could really see that. Um, Todd, who do you have as your Kobayashi? Okay, well, Kobayashi needs to be like really sophisticated and buttoned up, supposedly. And so, and it, since it is an Asian name, I went with a, my one of my favorite Asian actors. I went with Tony Leung. I feel like he definitely has that that aura about him that he could be this like mysterious person that just walks in and then walks into the room and and uh take takes over this group of hardened criminals where's that guy been he's still alive what's he been in where's he been i don't know i don't don't know what he's been in recently comeback roll i like it all right so instead of uh making the comeback uh cast like todd did I, I went with the up-and-comers, and it's funny, I also picked an Asian actor for uh, for Kobayashi. Not necessarily because of the name, just because I thought he would fit and I wanted to get him in this cast. And that is Steven Yun, who is uh, that one Asian guy in The Walking Dead. Uh, I thought he would, uh, like you said, that buttoned-up character that could uh, kind of walk into the room and present something and leave that you think might actually be Kaiser Soze. Uh, he he kind of has that mastermind look to him, and so uh, Steven Yeun is who I went with for uh, for Kobayashi. I guess it this that was another hard one. I had so much trouble with Kobayashi again because Pete Postlethwaite is so unique in his persona that nobody else can even give anything close to what Pete Postlethwaite gave to that role. Uh, I don't know. I could I could see a lot of a- other actors playing that role. It's not that hard. Like Walk Charlotte in. Rampling, apparently. Like Charlotte Rampling. <laughs> that is a good choice, though. I, I... It is a good choice. For a female usual suspect, Charlotte Rampling is a good choice. And I wanted to go with the up-and-comers, kind of the guys that are, are more unknown. I mean, Pete, Pete Postlethwaite was an Oscar nominee, but it was for In the Name of the Father. I mean, not 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 many people are going to know who he is at this point. So are we doing Edie or not? Because I have an Edie that I'd like to share. Okay, go ahead, go ahead and Eddie? share your Edie. Eddie. So, 
So Todd told us that we were doing Edie, and I was like, who's Eddie? And then I was like, oh, Edie. And uh, then I had to really recall the movie, because I don't remember any women in this movie. So uh, I guess Edie is the love interest of the uh, Gabriel Byrne character. And as Edie in my all-female version, I'm having um, the great German actor Peter Simonischek as Kate uh, uh, Blanchett's elderly love interest, but someone who's very protective of her and vulnerable, and I think ends up dead in the movie. Dang. Like most of the characters. <laughs> <laughs> She's supposed to be. Edie is like twenty years younger than than Keaton. It will, went, like, Kate Blanchett is twenty years younger than Peter Simonashek. <laughs> okay, Todd, do you have an Edie? Well, I was. I mean, I, it's not a difficult role to play necessarily. It's kind of a throwaway role, but I th- I was thinking Amber Heard because I like okay. I like watching her and stuff. I was thinking like an L Fanning or someone like that. Or maybe Dakota Fanning. One of the Fannings. With Sterling K. Brown? Yeah, why not? And you're making fun of me for an age difference? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) There's supposed to be an age difference. But the age difference isn't supposed to be like 80 to 40... I don't think it's, it's supposed, supposed to be a to be felony like 40 necessarily. To 20. <laughs> Remember, we don't want Brian Singer or Kevin Spacey in this in this, this film. <laughs> well, again, as with most of our recastings, we hope they never remake this movie. But if they did, that that is what we would like to see from it. Uh, always fun. Always fun. All right, let's move on. It's time to get into our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. Todd, you won our game last week, or last time. So you get to be the one that uh, picks our topic. What is our topic for power rankings this time around. I think this might be the longest like title of a topic we have ever had. So tell us what we're doing. <laughs> Alright, well in uh, honor of mid-90s, uh, I went with the, be- the your favorite movies n- directed by <laughs> people who have been nominated for acting Oscars. Okay, so these are movies directed by People who have been nominated for acting. Is yeah. it okay? Is it okay if they've won for acting? Yes. Okay. Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say. No. Just I only nominated. No winners are allowed. <laughs> <laughs> and I chose this because I love I love watching movies directed by actors, and I wanted to make it something where these are real actors. It's not like debatable whether you call them an actor or not. Like a like a Sidney Pollock or something like that. Like these are people who are real actors and they made mo- and they directed movies. And that's I've always I've always been drawn to those kinds of movies. And I wanna I wanna see what your guys' favorites are. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and start on this one. So my number five is actually a movie that uh, I mentioned in my power rankings last time because it had one of my favorite uh, fictional musicians in it. And that is 1996's That Thing You Do, written and directed by Tom Hanks. Uh, Tom Hanks, uh, after going through 
uh, an Oscar season for Philadelphia, and then an Oscar season for Forrest Gump, and then an Oscar season for Apollo 13, needed to do something light, and so he wrote and directed this movie, because honestly at that point Tom Hanks could do whatever he wanted. And it's this fun, light movie about this uh, this struggling band uh, in the harsh face of stardom. And they're trying to find their way, and uh, he plays Mr. White in it, which is a very, very minor role. Uh, it's just a fun movie. Um, you get to see the Oneaters in action. Um, first, uh, first major films for uh, actors like Liv Tyler and Charlize Theron and Steve Zahn. Uh, that thing you do, if you haven't seen it, it's a lot of fun. Get the song stuck in your head. I could have guaranteed that you were going to have that. <laughs> There's probably a couple more that you that uh, are not going to be surprises either. Uh, Todd, how about your number five? All right, well, I excluded some things from my list. I went, I went with, uh, I didn't include actors who have only been er, nominated for movies that they directed so that excludes people like kevin costner and woody allen who's kind of backed their way into an acting nomination but unfortunately that also excludes clint eastwood and orson wells so i'm not gonna have any of their movies on my list uh but my number five it's similar to terry's because it's not really a movie that you would expect the that actor to direct as their first movie but i went with nil by mouth which is gary oldman's uh only movies ever directed and which was in 1998 and I've, I've, I watched this movie one time and I almost want to leave it like that because it like really destroyed me when I watched it. It's, it's really depressing and, and dark. It's about a, an abusive patriarch and his, and his family. It's played by Ray Winstone and I don't really know another actor could have played that part other than maybe like early 80s De Niro. Uh, and one thing I, I always uh, thought was interesting, it's got the fifth most F-bombs in any movie and the third highest Fs per capita. So, only... <laughs> Only behind, like, The Wolf of Wall Street and a couple other movies. So, but, yeah. It's a, it's a really good movie, and you only really need to see it once, and you'll never forget it. No by mouth. I'm amazed that mid-90s is not on that list after one of their characters was named that. You know? I, I it, it's, yeah. At least the, the F's per capita, you know? Because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not a very long movie. Anyways. I digress. Zach, what's your number five? Uh, I sort of went with the uh, same direction as Todd. I tried to go for actors who really weren't known as directors at all. I, I originally was going to go with actors that really just had one film they ever directed, but I felt that that was a little too limiting. But I did try to stay away from the, you know, the Lawrence Olivier's, the Woody Allen's, etc. So my number five pick was uh, Home for the Holidays, directed by Jodie Foster in 1995. This is maybe the all-time greatest uh, Thanksgiving movie, and it stars Holly Hunter as a uh, woman who's recently been fired, and she goes back to see her family over the holidays, and it's a very stressful but comedically stressful situation, and Robert Downey Jr. is her younger brother, and uh, Robert Downey Jr. at that time in his life was really like on drugs and, and um, actually it, in a way he, uh, they sort of credit like 
I, th- I think he was trying to go cold turkey during the production of the film, and, and Jodie Foster really helped him out with that. But you can kind of see that manic hysteria in his performance. He's great in the movie. And so is Anne Bancroft, who plays Holly Hunter's mother, um, and Charles Durning. It's a really funny movie that holds up pretty well. And uh, Jodie Foster has directed a few movies since then. But um, this was her director. No, actually, was it? No, it wasn't, because she had directed Little Man Tape before. But this was one of the first movies she had directed. And uh, it's really well done, really funny. Um, and like I said, as a kind of a classic in the salt house for uh, thanksgivings all right all right i've never seen it i have really? not either wow that's shocking okay i may need to win trivia at some point it's really good it's really funny robert Downey jr is awesome in it and you think it might be better than hannah and her sisters that's your no i don't I, I wouldn't necessarily go that far but but it, it's really I, I it is like i mean from a purely like comic standpoint because it's a pretty straightforward comedy um it's just a great like thanksgiving comedy movie really really highly re- recommended okay all right so number four on my list is another film that uh it's his only dir- uh directed film and it's another one where it's not the type of film you would expect him to direct and that is the directed by Edward Norton film uh, from 2000, Keeping the Faith, a romantic comedy starring Edward Norton. Yes, a romantic comedy starring Edward Norton, along with Ben Stiller and Jenna Elfman. Uh, they form a love triangle. What makes this one new, uh, unique is Ben Stiller plays a, uh, a Jewish rabbi while uh, Edward Norton plays a Catholic priest. And that is the love triangle with their childhood friend played by Jenna Elfman. Uh, it's it's kind of silly, but it's fun. It's great. It's a uh, it's one of my favorite romantic comedies, uh, and uh, it's Ben Stiller at the height of his game and Edward Norton doing something that you never see Edward Norton do. Um, and Jenna Elfman really when she was a thing. So uh, it's a it's a really great movie. It also has some supporting roles by some amazing actors. Uh, like uh, Anne Bancroft again, uh, Eli Wallach, uh, and Milos Forman makes an appearance as well. So um, uh, he definitely, Edward Norton was able, definitely able to get some uh, some of the Hollywood legends into his film. So Keeping the Faith is my number four. Yeah, we should have predicted your list, Terry, not Adams. That's a I know. Very, like, classic I, Terry film. Yeah, I knew for a fact that was going to be on there too. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the first thing I thought when this. I gave the list to Terry. I was like, yeah. Yeah, that, that's going to be, like, the first thing that comes to his mind. <laughs> Pretty much. All, All right. right. Well, Todd. with my number four, I went with uh, a movie that not a whole lot of people have seen. It, it's uh, directed by Al Pacino. It's called Chinese Coffee. It's uh, based on a play. I love play adaptations, and Pacino's one of the, like, great stage actors. I mean, if and if I can never see him on stage, I'll, I'll just have to keep watching movies like this and... Glengarry Glenn Ross and Angels in America and stuff like that. Pacino plays a writer who gets fired from his job as like a doorman or something. And but he's also but he, so he goes to his buddy's uh, apartment and they uh, to get his opinion on his manuscript. And it, the, that guy is played by Jerry Orbach, and it's basically just two characters, the whole movie in a room, and they have like really interesting conversations. And it's one of Pacino's ten best performances, and he's my best actor in two thousand. It's a movie that I. I love, and I don't think anybody else has actually seen it. <laughs> I definitely haven't. Me neither. Well, I, I think we're we're starting to establish the movies that uh that will be the next ones we hand out when we uh when we win trivia. Zach, number four. 
Okay, my number four is a 2005 film directed by Tommy Lee Jones. I believe it was his directorial debut, and that is Three Burials of Malquitas Estrada, uh, which stars Tommy Lee Jones and Barry Pepper. And it's the story of a uh, rancher in Texas, and uh, he his best friend is a uh, Mexican, uh, Malquitas Estrada, who is murdered by a... Um, a border patrol agent, a racist border patrol agent, and so uh, play, played by Barry Pepper. And so, what uh, Tommy Lee Jones embarks on this journey to uh, basically bury his friend over three times with this with this uh, uh, border agent. Um, and it's like you know this sort of revenge story, but also sort of a, a social conscious story as well. Um, it's a really good film. It's definitely in the western genre, and it's beautifully shot. And it has a pretty deep message, I think pretty relevant today in today's political environment. Um, and Tommy Lee Jones, I mean, if you were to imagine him directing a film, it would almost certainly have to be a Western. And uh, he shows a really deft hand at direction with this film. I wish he would make more films. The screenplay is by Guillermo Ariega. Um, and it's just an awesome mid-2000s Western when they started to make good Westerns again. So Three Burials of Marquitas Estrada, number four. I've always wanted to see that one, but I never did. All right, number three on my list. I put some rules on my list as well, um, but not quite as strict as you guys. I, I made sure that I didn't put anything on my list where it was uh, them directing their way to their acting nomination. Um, however, there were some that I couldn't leave off, and uh, I very easily could have just made this a top five of Clint Eastwood directed movies because Clint Eastwood he is an Oscar nominated actor and an Oscar winning director and if you look at films like Mystic River and Million Dollar Baby and Changeling and Gran Torino and Victus Hereafter I mean you could go through the whole list all the way back to to films like Unforgiven and things like that uh, he is about as accomplished of a director as he is an actor even though everyone remembers him as an actor uh, but what I put on this list, it's kind of a tie, but I'm gonna, but not really. Is I'm going to put number three, um, a joint spot with uh, his uh, Iwo Jima saga, uh, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, because honestly, I think that's the best thing that he's contributed uh, as a director to uh, to film. Uh, these two movies, uh, looking at the Battle of Iwo Jima in World War II from the perspective of the Americans and the perspective of the Japanese, is absolutely incredible. Um, Letters of Iwo Jima is definitely uh, the better movie, but Flags of Our Fathers is also amazing, and they really work as companion pieces. You really have to see both if you're going to see one. And uh, yeah, absolutely stunning. And like I said, the best thing that uh, Clint Eastwood has done and the best thing that he's provided to, uh, to, uh, the, uh, to his filmography. So uh, number three on my list is uh, Clint Eastwood's Iwo Jima saga. Hard to argue. Yeah. Uh, for my number three, I uh, went with a movie from 2007. It's, it was uh, Into the Wild, directed by Sean Penn. Uh, it's probably, of all the movies on my list, this is the one with like the best like case of directing. Uh, it's the story of Christopher McCandless, who graduates college and decides he's going to give up everything and move to the wilderness in Alaska. Uh, Emil Hirsch plays the role, and it's definitely a role that Sean Penn would have been would have played if it was available like 20 years earlier. 
Uh, I'm not usually a fan of the man versus nature type movies, but this one is thoughtful and beautiful, and the Eddie Vedder music is like iconic at this point, and one one of the best soundtracks that, or one of my favorite soundtracks ever. But yeah, Into the Wild is an amazing movie, and that's my number three. Good pick. Yeah, it was right around when I first met you, Todd, that you were obsessed with that movie. It was like the first movie I remember you like going crazy over. Yeah, that sounds about right. Still can't believe that Emil Hirsch was not nominated for that. How yeah. dare the Oscars? Uh, Tommy Lee Jones. In the Valley of Vila. We we have an award name for that, right? We do. We do. The, the, Tom- <laughs> the Tommy Lee Jones in the Valley of Ela uh, prediction. We we've got to shorten that that title at some point. Maybe it's just Almost like as long a- the Ela Award. I like all the words. It's like it's like describing this power rankings list. You know, it's, it's unnecessarily <laughs> verbose. Well, Todd did name both of them, so there you go. <laughs> You also have the Secret in Their Eyes Award, too, right? That's another one. That, um, that is. That is. Yeah. All right. Well, well. interesting that Todd picked Sean Penn, because Sean Penn is also my number three, but not for Into the Wild. Into the, Wild. the film that I have him chosen for at my number three is The Pledge, which uh, Terry thinks he must have predicted. Yes. Um, yeah. So I guess we're showing our real colors here. Um, I love The Pledge. I think it's one of the best movies of the 2000s, and uh, it's Sean Penn's second film that he directed after The Crossing Guard, which also starred Jack Nicholson, and it's a film about a police officer who is, or a, a, uh, like a police detective who, um, you know, it sort of starts out this very predictable trajectory, like he's retiring from the force, and it's this kind of one last unsolved murder that he obsesses him, and so he buys this gas station in the middle of the forest in uh, in Nevada in the hopes of trying to lure this this child killer. And and then he has a relationship with this Robin White Wright Penn character who's sort of this backwoods redneck woman. But just to get to her daughter, to use the daughter as bait for this child killer. And it, it's really a gripping film. Um, the screenplay is just awesome. Uh, I guess it's based on like a German book from like the 1920s, I think. And uh, Sean Penn, he's not, he doesn't act in the movie, um, but uh, like this and Into the Wild, he's really a talented director. He needs to direct more stuff. Um, and this is one of Jack Nicholson's best performances ever. And Benicio Del Toro, who, like The Usual Suspects, dies way too early in this film. Spoiler alert. But anyway, The Pledge, my number three film on this long-winded list. He also had directed The Indian Runner before that. Oh, sorry that's about like that. That's my okay, I... favorite Sean Penn movie. Right, right. I, that's a good one, too. My bad. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. <clears throat> okay. I remember you forced me to watch The Pledge one time, and I remember I liked it, but I remember nothing about it. So, good but not memorable. That's how I would describe the pledge. Ouch. Yeah. That's, that, that's hurtful. You hurt my feelings, Terry. Number two on my list is, uh, is one that I've, uh, I'm going to highlight an actor here that I got grief on a couple podcasts ago for, for naming on a list. Uh, number two on my list is Good Night and Good Luck, uh, directed by George Clooney. Uh, this is when George Clooney was really at the height of his powers. He actually won Best Supporting Actor this year, but for a different film. And his uh, and his line when he got up to the microphone after winning Best Supporting Actor was, well, I guess I'm not winning director. Because he was also nominated for director and producer uh, for Good Night and Good Luck. This is the story of Edward R. Murrow and uh, his fight as a, uh, as a journalist uh, against 
Senator McCarthy and the Red Scare of the of the fifties. Uh, it's an amazing film, and honestly, a, a very uh, a very good film to go revisit, considering what our uh, current political culture is like. Uh, but uh, David Strathairn gives an amazing performance. It is a film that was nominated for Best Picture. Uh, that was all black and white, which is really the first film that did that since like Schindler's List. So, and it's kind of become a trend that's happened more recently. But uh, I'd like to think that George Clooney started it. Uh, good night and good luck. An amazing movie, and it's my number two on this list. That's a great choice. Uh... For my number two, I went with another play adaptation. Uh, it's from a couple years ago. It's Fences, directed by Denzel Washington. Uh, I don't really know anyone that liked the movie as much as I did, honestly. Uh, it's about a former baseball player turned garbage man and his family in 1950s Pittsburgh. Denzel is amazing. Viola Davis is amazing. It's one of the best ensemble casts of the decade, and... Uh, I just love the sound of dialogue in movies, and this is like a really interesting, basically, series of conversations, and I I wish I could have seen it on stage, too. But, yeah, Fences, a great movie, my number two. Good choice. Good choice, absolutely. Uh, Alright, my number two film is uh, a, a classic, and a lot of people don't realize who the director was. The director was Charles Lawton, and this was the only film he ever made. And, this, and if this is the only film you're ever going to make, it's a pretty legendary pick. And that film is The Night of the Hunter from 1955, starring Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters, and Lillian Gish. And it's a story about a uh, basically psychopathic, crazed preacher. And maybe you've seen the famous, you know, still from the f film where he has love and, and hate emboldened on his fingers. And he escapes from prison and he charms everyone in the southern town. But really his mission is to find this, uh, you know, this money. He knows the whereabouts of this stolen money that he heard, overheard his cellmate talk about. And the stolen money is actually hi hidden within this rag doll that's owned by this little girl and her older brother. And so throughout the whole movie, he's basically trying to get to them and get to this rag doll. And he's like this psychopathic, crazed uh, preacher who everyone loves except for these two kids they see right through him and the film uh, consists of some chase sequences and later the little boy and girl are rescued by this elderly uh, woman who's played by Lillian Gish um, it's one of the most beautiful films ever made in terms of the cinematography by Stanley Cortez who also was the photographer for some of Orson Welles's films and just the compositions are just amazing in it I mean the lighting and the shadow and the contrast and the exposure is is wonderful um, see it on the big screen if you can Criterion just put out a 4k restoration for blu-ray of it looks awesome i can't believe this is the only film that this guy ever directed i mean it's it from an aesthetic standpoint it just looks amazing like i don't know how he how he would have had the knowledge to put the shots together like that um but like I said, if this is the one credit you're going to have as director, it's a great one. And it's a film that has grown in terms of its legacy over the years. It wasn't a big hit when it initially came out, but over the years it's gained a reputation. And so uh, it's one of the great films of the 50s. So Night of the Hunter by Charles Lawton. Yeah, it's a great choice. I was, I was thinking about that movie too. And it's movies like that that is why I wanted to make the list, honestly. Another one on I haven't list, seen. Todd. Yeah, well. But you have seen Elizabeth Town. Let's make that clear. Yes, yes. And loved it. Thank you very much. All right. On to number one. Number one on my list is a film that has already been mentioned, and that is 2007's Into the Wild, directed by Sean Penn. I echo a lot of what Todd 
said. In fact, I'm shocked that it's not number one on his list because he likes this movie a whole lot more than I do. Uh, but I, I can't deny how amazing this film is. Uh, Emile Hirsch gives an amazing performance. Again, Christopher McCandless, uh, Alexander Supertramp. Uh, what an amazing uh, role, what an amazing film. Um, and again, like everyone has said, I think that, that this is the one constant on all of our lists so far is that Sean Penn is represented. So yes, I echo Sean Penn, make more films. Uh, Into the Wild, absolutely incredible, number one on my list. Awesome. Uh, my number one act is... Uh... One of my, it's in my top 100 of all time, and my number one of 1993. It's a Bronx Tale, directed by Robert De Niro. Oh, what a shocker! It's, it's yet another play adaptation. This one, the play written by Chaz Palminteri, uh, based on his life Agent as a child. Agent Kuyan, exactly. Uh, it's set in 1960s in the Bronx. De Niro plays a father who is uh, worried when his son starts hanging out with a local gangster. The gangster played by Palminteri. And uh, it's a lot less of a mob movie and more of like a family drama. And the dynamics between the son and De Niro is complicated and, and emotional. And I, it it doesn't have as much of, of the play feel as the other movies on my list, but it's it's still it's still just fascinating to watch. And supposedly Palminteri actually uh, does a one man show on stage to this day for this of this story, which I think would be interesting to watch. Uh, yeah, A Bronx Tale. I love the movie. It's my number one for sure. It's definitely one of De Niro's most underrated performances. And it's a, it's a different type of performance than what you typically get from him. Um, but he just shines in it. It's hard to imagine anyone else in that role after watching it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you would think that he probably would have usually gotten the parliamentary role in, right. in that case. But, but Chaz had funny. to play that since he wanted, since he idolized that gangster as a child, so he had to play that part, apparently. Man, right. Chaz, Chaz Palminteri making his way onto this podcast today. Yeah, I think it's the first time his name's been mentioned on this podcast at all, and he's all over the place this week. Exactly. Well, Bullets Over Broadway is not my number one, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, tell, tell us about the War Zone, Zach. So the War Zone is my number one. <laughs> Todd knew that ahead of time. Don't know how. That was a it was a real shocker. Um, shot in the dark. Uh, yeah. So the War Zone, um, directed by Tim Roth, uh, released in 1999. Um, also starring Ray Winstone, who was on Todd's one of Todd's films, Nil by Mouth. Um, but in in like Nil by Mouth, this is a story of a of a seriously messed up uh, British family. Uh, although it doesn't take place in London like Nil by Mouth. This the War Zone takes place in like the countryside, and uh, it's all about a family that harbors a really shameful dark secret. Um, the incestuous relationship between the father played by uh ray winstone and the daughter uh, played by laura belmont and it's um and it's sort of uncovered by the the son character and we sort of see the movie through his perspective and uh like todd sort of characterized nil by mouth it's really not a pleasant experience to watch at all it's a, it's a pretty horrific movie to see but it uh, is incredibly powerful and probably may, maybe the best acted movie of the 1990s um looking at the four performances tilda swinton is also in it and she plays the mother um and there's a small performance by Colin Farrell as well so it's a great movie not for not not an easy viewing experience I wish Jonah Hill had maybe seen this movie as more of his inspiration for mid-90s to actually like go full throttle but um 
that movie wasn't really about incest, I get. But uh, this movie goes out all the way and pulls no punches and is unremitting, uncompromising, and uh, it's great cinema. So, number one, The War Zone by Tim Roth. His only film that he directed. And he didn't write it, and he didn't act in it, which makes it all that more interesting that he would choose that as his directed movie. Yes, that, that is true. The, the novel by Alexander Stewart is very good, though, too. Okay, it is now time to get into our game of guessing Adam's list. We got honorable mentions. Oh, honorable mentions first. Yes, let's do that first. Then we'll guess Adam's list. So my honorable mentions. Uh, I have a couple films where um, where you had uh, people direct themselves to their Oscar nomination. That would have been at the top of my list, like Citizen Kane and Life Is Beautiful. Uh, both of those would have been uh, at the top. Um, Woody Allen is more known as the director than the actor. However, he does have an acting nomination, and my favorite of his films is Midnight in Paris. And the last film on my list is uh, The Conspirator, directed by Robert Redford. Uh, that is my, uh, my contribution to his, uh, his filmography as a director. Uh, That's the one you're going to pick? An often forgotten film, but I loved it. About, uh, about Better than the, Ordinary People? The trial a- of... Uh, of the uh, Lincoln Assassins, so uh, that's the one I'm going with. I'm going wow. with it. It's a great movie, but he's got a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly, I'll admit there are a lot of Robert Redford films I haven't seen that he's directed. Like Ordinary People, I haven't seen yet, so I couldn't oh, put that on the list. There we go. Quiz show. Um, or, I could have put Quiz Show on the list, but no one else was going to mention the Conspirator, so I put it on there. So <laughs> that was on my long, long list, but yeah. Uh, well, my honorable mentions, I had The War Zone, and I had Robert Redford's A River Runs Through It, uh, Higher Ground, directed by Vera Farmiga, uh, oh, good one. Sling Blade, and uh, A Woman Under the Influence, which is John Cassavetes' best yeah, movie. Yeah, but that, that's the thing. You can't count John Cassavetes, though. That's not fair. That's he the was same nominated thing. for an acting Oscar. That's why I didn't I put know him he on was, the list. That's I the same thing. If, I mean, if, he was, if, I could, if I put him on my list, he would be number one. I mean, that's just that's not fair. It's the same thing with Eastwood and Woody Allen and Laurence Olivier. But, but he didn't direct himself to his nomination. He had that random The Dirty Dozen nomination. <laughs> whatever. I completely forgot that Sling Blade was directed by Billy Bob, or else I would have put him on the list, too. Well, wait, what are you talking about with Cassavetes? Wasn't he nominated for um, Rosemary's Baby? I, th- I think it was for The Dirty Dozen. Oh, I think you're totally wrong. I'm looking this up. I thought he was directed. Or he was nominated for, uh, well, maybe for both. Uh, yeah, yeah, for both. No, you're right. Dang it. Good thing I didn't bet you. Okay, you're right. He was nominated for, for the Dirty Dozen, but not for Rosemary's Baby. Okay, yeah, I would have lost a lot of money on that. Okay, good. Or or having to drink a burr. Either way. Yes, very true. Exercise restraint. By the way, I, 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 I lost a bet to one of my other friends. Now I have to watch The Karate Kid, which I've never seen. Um, okay. So uh, my honorable mentions list, which like last time, I think was a more fun list than my actual list. Um, I had Denzel Washington for Ant- uh, Antoine Fisher. 
Um, Nil by Mouth, directed by Gary Oldman, which is a great movie. Quick Change, which was directed by Bill Murray, although he was only one of the co-directors. Billy Budd, directed by Peter Ustinov. Diane Keaton has directed a couple of really good films, Unstrung Heroes and Wildflower, a good early Reese Witherspoon film. Dennis Hopper, direct, he, he, I, he would have been on my list, but I feel like he's directed a few too many films to, to really qualify, but he directed this really good movie in the early 80s called Out of the Blue with Linda Mance. And then the one that I'm pulling right out of my ass that I hope impresses Todd a little bit, uh, Christine Lahey, directed my first mister with albert brooks that's a pretty good movie and lily Lee sobieski i didn't even know wow. she was an oscar nominee yeah i so. didn't either <laughs> i was proud of that one <laughs> not gonna be on adam's list i don't think not gonna be on adam's list probably not okay so let's get into adam's list so uh, we are going to try and guess what Adam's top five is. Whoever gets the most gets to pick our topic for the next time around. Uh, Todd usually wins this as he is the one that knows Adam the best. However, we both give our uh, our best try. So, my top five uh, for Adam. Number five, I have Dead Man Walking, directed by Tim Robbins. Uh, number four, Rocky Balboa, directed by Sylvester Stallone. Uh, number three, Life is Beautiful, directed by Roberto Benigni. Number two, Fences, directed by Denzel. And number one, Million Dollar Baby, directed by Clint Eastwood. Todd, okay. what do you got? Uh, I went with Rocky II, uh, directed by Stallone. Flags of Our Fathers, directed by Eastwood. Into the Wild, directed by Sean Penn. Dances with Wolves, directed by Kevin Costner. And Life is Beautiful, Roberto Benigni. I went with A Star is Born, directed by Bradley Cooper. Unbroken, directed by Angelina Jolie. Fences, directed by Denzel, Dick Tracy, directed by Warren Beatty, and Into the Wild, directed by Sean Penn. Okay. Adam's list. First, he's got some honorable mentions. And his honorable mentions make me think that he may have misunderstood the category, or just he doesn't know his Oscar nominees. (laughs) Honorable mentions, he has Passion of the Christ, directed by Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson was never nominated for an acting Oscar. He also has Matilda, directed by Danny DeVito, who was never nominated for an acting Oscar, uh, and Fences, directed by Denzel. That's a good one. His top five is good, just so you know. His top five is good. Uh, number five, Life is Beautiful. Number four, Bridges of Madison County, directed by Clint Eastwood. Number three, A Star is Born. Number two, Million Dollar Baby. And number one, Quiz Show. Dang it. I almost put Quiz Show on the list. Before the podcast, as we were getting ready, I was like, oh, I'm going to throw this on there. I don't know if Zach, I don't know if Adam's seen it, but I'm going to throw it on there. It was Quiz Show. And then he put it number one, and I took it off because I'm like, there's no way Adam has seen this movie. And it's his number one. (laughs) Dang it. I only got one. I got got one. I got two. I got Life is Beautiful and Million Dollar Baby. So I'm the winner. Nice. I never win this thing. But is a quiz show better than The Conspirator? I mean, let's get real. Honestly, Remember? quiz show's probably better than The Conspirator, but... So then why did you have The Conspirator? Because no one's going to talk about The Conspirator. <laughs> it's my honorable mention. There's a reason why no one's going to talk about it, though. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a forgotten movie, but it's a really good movie. I like that movie. It's 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 history. That's why I like that movie. Anyways, so next podcast, I will be picking the category for our power rankings. 
But now it is time to hop into trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And before we get into our trivia game, Zach once again lost, as he is prone to do. And he had to watch a film. So, Zach, tell us what you thought of Walk Hard. Uh, yes, well, the film I watched was Walk Hard, A Dewey Cox Story, um, which I think I tried to watch once at some point when it came out, and I must have fallen asleep during it. And um, unfortunately, um, my initial uh, sort of suspicions about the movie were kind of proved to be true. Um, I think you have to be in the right mood to watch it, or maybe on the right drug to watch it. Um, <laughs> it it's very um, bizarre. Um, some of the humor is like, eh, you know, sometimes works. I, I will say there were two scenes that I laughed. Um, one scene was when Jenna Fisher was taught. No, wait, John C. Riley mentioned a, a dream that I guess Jenna Fisher had about licking his balls. I thought that was kind of funny. And I also liked the scene where he is writing his magnum opus in like the late sixties and he brings a goat into the recording studio. That, that was kind of funny. I actually do also like all the animals that his first wife, the Kristen Wiig character has. Like I like the random giraffe. Um, there's definitely some Apatow humor sprinkled throughout, like the presence of male genitalia just randomly showing up in the movie. Um, and I do think some of the songs are clever. I still really like the uh, the, the song about midgets. I thought that you know that that's pretty that's pretty good. Um, so I guess hit or miss overall. But you know, given how how much you how much Todd and Terry both talked about how amazing this was and claiming that Dewey Cox was a better musician than Spinal Tap, I have to say I'm a little disappointed. So um, it, it, it's a two and a half star film, but part, partly fueled by the anger that anyone would suggest that Dewey Cox was more talented than, than Derek Smalls or Nigel Tufnell. It, it's uh, you, you totally missed it. it. It's it's so good. And one of the things that will add to it is if you actually hear the soundtrack and some of the film or some of the songs that are not actually in the film, uh, they're they're ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> They're so funny. Uh, well, at Jonah least you've Hill's seen it. it now. Jonah Hill is yeah. in it. He's the wrong yes, kid. Jonah, the wrong <laughs> kid. Yeah, that was the problem with the movie. Like, it was like an SNL sketch. Sketch. That was maybe the issue. Like, some of the, you know, okay, yeah, you know, uh, Tim Meadows. You know, you, oh, you don't want to take this drug. I, we get it. Like, that's not funny after three times. You know, the pulling out of the sink and the water spraying out. That's not funny. Like, okay, it's funny the first three times, but maybe on time number five or six, it gets a little repetitive. That's what I mean about, like, being stoned watching this movie. It'd probably be a better experience. But uh, but I will say some of the songs were, were, were clever. But there's such a fine line between clever and stupid, as pointed out by Spinal Tap. How awesome was the was the scene with the Beatles? I think they gave uh, some pretty good Beatles impersonations. Yeah, Paul Paul Rudd's was was my favorite. Yeah, he he nailed that accent pretty pretty nicely, and I liked the animation. <laughs> and I think I'm trying to remember. I think doesn't Jack White play Elvis? Uh, that sounds correct. I yeah. think I think it's Jack White that plays Elvis in that. Yeah, a lot of musicians make cameos somewhat inexplicably, like Lyle Lovett and Jewel, a few others. Yeah, those those are and Jackson Brown. Yeah, those are those yeah. are interesting ones. Also, you have uh, Simon Helberg as the uh, as the Jew that gets uh, Dewey Cox into the the last thing. I think that's interesting. 
He's like the great grandson of uh, of Harold Ramis. Um, yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen Dewey Cox, it's totally worth watching. Um, no, it's not. Yes, it is. Oh, it's <laughs> it, it, it's it may not be. You may not think it's as good as Spinal Tap, but it was worth the watch. You gotta admit that. Um, some parts were funny. Can, can you admit that it was probably worth the watch a lot more in 2007, right after, like, Ray and Walk the Line came out? Um, and if I was still in college with you seeing it, um, sure. Okay. I'll take that as a win. <laughs> it's better than the usual suspects. Oh, oh. All right. Oh. Well, let, let's let's move into our uh, into our our trivia game here. Uh, Zach was tired of losing, so uh, he's going to run our trivia game this time. And yes. uh, we have no idea what's going on, uh, what we're going to be uh, uh, triviaed on. So, Zach, tell us what we're doing. So, this is going to be a, a fun little trivia game. Um, we are going to look at the birthplaces and birth dates of some recent Oscar winners, and we're going to test your knowledge about their biographies. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to list a few um, of the Oscar winners from the 2017 Academy Awards, and you are going to estimate your best guess for both when they were born and where they were born. And uh, I'll keep kind of a running tally of it. So I have. Uh, so are we going seven... like closest by geography or something? Or? Closest by geography and by date. So so do we? How how specific do we need to be here? Like state, country, city. Oh, as, as as specific as you possibly can be. I I, I will be the judge of uh, who's who's closer to being correct because and I have all the information here. Age or year or date? Uh, year. Uh, give us a date if possible. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to start with. I regret the... my decision forfeiting my <laughs> right to uh, to run this game. Okay. So we're going to start with the best director from the 2017 Academy Awards, and that is none other than the great Guillermo del Toro. And you have to tell me, within as as close as you can possibly get, when was Guillermo del Toro born, and where was he born? And I will start with you, Terry, since you have such a high opinion of my trivia contests. All right, so I'm going to go... So, so location and date, right? Correct. I'm going to say... I mean, it's in Mexico, so I'm going to say Mexico City. Mexico City, Mexico. Um, June 5th, 1969. Okay, and Todd, what is your guess? Well, I wrote down Mexico City, uh, Cinco de Mayo, 1968. <laughs> and Todd gets the point for this because it, uh, Mexico City, it was not Mexico City. He was born in Guadalajara, so that cancels each other out. He was born October 9th, 1964, so by virtue of Todd being closer, uh, Todd gets the point. So, we are moving on now to the Best Actor winner from the 2017 Oscars, and that is, who's already been mentioned on this podcast, the one and only Mr. Gary Oldman. Terry, can you give us a birth date and birth place for Gary Oldman? Uh, 
I'm going to say Liverpool. And, oh gosh, I'm going to say he's like, I'm going to say he's like 54. So 54, 55. So I'm going to say, uh, let's go with like October 20th. 1964. Okay, and Todd? Gary Oldman. Uh, I went with December 8th, 1951, and I'm going to say he was born in, like, Berkshire or something. Berkshire? Is that a place? I think so. <laughs> Isn't that in the UK? <laughs> Yeah, there you go. It's uh, southeast uh, England, west of uh, London. Okay, so um, hold on. I may need to do some consultation on my maps here. So uh, Terry is very slightly closer to um, Gary Oldman's uh, birth date. He was born March 21st, 1958. Oh. And uh, I'm not seeing where Berkshire is located. Um, but maybe I'm just stupid, which could be a very real... I, I'm not up to date on my British geography. Um, so west of London. Uh, west southeast, of London. Southeast England. Um, I'm going to give this one to Terry, because Terry is closer on the birth date. So Terry gets the point Where for, was he born? Yeah, he was born in London. Oh, he was born in London. Okay. okay. So, moving on... Uh, I'm moving to our Best Actress winner from 2017, and that is none other than the great Frances McDormand. Terry, do you have a birth date and birth location for Frances McDormand? Uh, let's see here. Um, I feel like she's... I feel like she's from the Midwest somewhere. Uh... I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say she's from, or she was born in St. Louis, Missouri on, uh, let's see here, March 17th, 1960. Okay, and Todd, what what say you? Frances uh, McDormand. I say that she was born August 1st, 1964 in Dallas. August 1st, 1964 in Dallas. Well, I think the winner on this one is most assuredly Terry. Terry was closer with the birth date, which is actually May 23rd, 1957, and the location, which was Gibson City, Illinois. Hey, so I wasn't that far off. Terry... Terry has two points, and Todd has one point. Todd, you need to do better. Okay. All right. Next one is the Best Supporting Actor winner from 2017, Mr. Sam Rockwell. Terry, do we have a date of birth and place of birth for Sam Rockwell? Um... Okay. I'm going to go Hollywood, California. Um, 
February 3rd, 1969. All right. Okay. And I have, I have, I wrote down June 9th, 1969 in Boston. June it's going to come down to the, the birthplace. In Austin. <laughs> in Boston, very, he said. He said Boston. Very close birth dates. You were both actually very close to his birth date. You were both within a year. He was born November 5th, 1968. But unfortunately for you, Todd, he was born in San Mateo County, California. That is all that it says in his biography. We don't have an actual city. So I'm going to assume that is closer to California than Boston. And Terry takes right. a commanding 3-1 to one lead. Hey, we used to live in San Mateo. Mateo. <laughs> <laughs> we are now moving on to Allison Janney, the Best Supporting Actress winner from 2017. Do we have, Terry, a date of birth and a location of birth for one Allison Janney? Um, I'm going to say Atlanta, Georgia. And... May 7th, 1970. May 7th, 1970. All right. Uh, right uh, after the Apollo 13 mission. Yes. <laughs> All right. I wrote down March 15th, 1956 in Albuquerque. <laughs> wow. Very specific, Todd. Maybe you know something we don't. Um, so, uh, Allison Janney's date of birth was November 19th, 1959. Oh, so, yes. Terry, you were, you were was, quite a bit off on that one. I was way on off that on that one. one. I, gave, I gave her she, more credit than she deserved, I guess. I guess so. And she was born in Boston, which was Todd's guest for Sam Rockwell. So, I'm actually going to give this one to Todd because I feel like Albany, Atlanta, probably, you know cross out and and todd needs a point so we're gonna give it to todd because he got the birth date considerably closer so the score is now three to two terry still leads still anyone's game we are going to go now to the winner for the best original screenplay oscar from the 2017 academy awards and that is mr jordan peele terry do you have a date of birth and place of birth for jordan peele uh wow jordan peele I'm going to say Chicago, Illinois, um, and July 19th, 1975. Okay. Todd, what say you? Okay, I have December 8th, 1972 in Queens. So, the correct birth date is February 21st, 1979, and normally I would be prone to giving that to Terry. However, Todd actually got the place where Jordan Peele was born, which is New York City. Yes. So, I feel like I should give the point to Todd, just to make this come full circle and go to our final round. Oh, gosh, no! <laughs> and our final final person is none James other than the winner for best adapted screenplay james ivory a very <laughs> revered presence um very mysterious because you you know it's it's going to be very hard to guess where and when he was born was it in this century we're not really sure um 
But we'll take anyone's guess. This is for the game right here, folks. Oh, it is coming down to the wire, coming down to James Ivory. Ta- Terry, tell us when James Ivory was born and where he was born. Oh, gosh. Okay. And and by the way, this one out of all seven of them is the most surprising. I mean, I, I'll i just put that out there. That was Maybe I shouldn't even say that, but I, I, I guess I, what kind of... What kind of assumptions would you even have where he's from? But it was out there. That's that's my hint. I have absolutely no idea on his nationality. Uh, okay. I'm going to say... Gosh, what is... I'm going to say he was born... In Dublin on August eighteenth, nineteen twenty nine. Okay, nicely done. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, what say you? All right, I wrote down January 1st, 1931, in Luxembourg. <laughs> wow, this is, this is really tough because, um, well, let, let's start with the, with the easier one. You were both actually pretty close with his birth date. His birth date is June 7th, 1928. That's so Terry, me. you're slightly closer on that. But then you're, you're, you're maybe both going to have to help me with the geography a little bit. Believe it or not, James Ivory was born in Berkeley, California. He is a... <laughs> wow. <laughs> he is a naturalized citizen. So I'm just going to do a little bit of math here. The, the distance well, from Dublin, Ireland to Dublin Berkeley... is closer than Luxembourg. Are, are we sure? Oh, Belgium? Yes. Then than Luxembourg. Well, I'm seeing now, um, let's see. Well, I, I know, I know I'm seeing how much a, a plane ride would cost, but, um, doing my cursory examination of the globe, I would have to say that Dublin does look a little closer than Luxembourg. So I think sadly for Todd, well, I got, uh, I, I, I would say the birth, the birthplace is a complete wash because we were so far off and I got a closer birthday. I, I would tend to agree with that. So, Terry, I, I will anoint you champion. Congratulations. How does it feel to know so much about James Ivory? Gosh. I, I, all right. I will admit that was a good one. That was a really good trivia game. James Ivory also went to the University of Oregon, interestingly enough. He is a duck. <laughs> wow. Oh, my word. So, Terry, you get to choose the film that either Todd or I get to watch. Okay. I have no idea what I'm going to choose yet, so uh, so I'll, uh, I'll let you guys know later. And everybody else will find out on the next podcast. But let's wrap this thing up with our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. Uh, Zach, since you made us... Uh, made us suffer through that that trivia game you get to be the first one to go 
Well, I feel like we've talked a lot about a, lo- a lot about bad movies today, so I don't want to give you know these movies the luxury of having my quote. So my quote is from the English Patient episode of Seinfeld, which is like I said earlier, the way I feel about the Usual Suspects, and it's Elaine talking about the way she feels about um, the English Patient, which has a an interesting parallel to the way I feel about the Usual Suspects. Uh, she is yelling at the movie screen and says, "Quit telling your stupid story about the stupid desert and just die already." Die! And that's the way I feel about Kaiser Soja and uh, all the characters in The Usual Suspects. And the way I feel about this podcast. I think it could sometimes characterize this podcast very nicely. How you always have to end everything you do. Uh, Todd, your quote of the day. Alright, so with my quote, I went with uh, a quote from Black Mass uh, because of uh, the recent deceased Whitey Bulger... (laughs) Uh, went with the, uh, <laughs> hold on, hold much... on, hold on. You have to tell a little bit of the story because I hadn't heard it. And you told me this on the phone last night and I was shocked and appalled. And so tell me, tell me, tell us what happened to Whitey Bulger? Well, there was like a, there's supposedly this big conspiracy that he, cause he was transferred prisons at age 89 while he's in a wheelchair to this, to like a really... Uh, high security prison and put in general population within 11 hours he had gotten brutally murdered by somebody that he informed on like 30 years ago and yeah so weird someone that high profile be in general population and he got beat by a lock in a sock and had his tongue cut out so he pretty much probably had that coming his whole life but at age 89 that's pretty messed up <laughs> But, so why are we talking? What's your quote? Uh, it's a quote that pretty much describes the life of a gangster, I suppose. He says, this is uh, Johnny Depp talking, uh, I, I need you to listen very careful to what I'm saying because there are lessons throughout your life. you got to learn from these things, right? Here's the deal. You got didn't get in trouble because you punched this sneaky little brat in the face. You got in trouble because you punched this sneaky little brat in the face in front of other people. So the lesson you got to learn is this. It's not what you do, it's when and where you do it, and who you do it with. Or, or who you do it to. If nobody sees it, then it didn't happen. So, that is probably, yeah, the perfect summation of what a, of what a gangster's life's like, I guess. That had surprisingly little profanity in it. I was expecting more. True, yeah. true. He wasted all that on uh, mid-90s. I just had to say the character's name. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my quote is uh, from one of my uh, one of my directed by an Oscar nominated actor films, and that is that thing you do. And this is a, a quote describing the Oneaters, which also I feel can also describe the three of us on this podcast. The quote is: "I found that a hit record is like a stew; all the ingredients have to come together just right." Otherwise, it's just soup. Mm, so it's deep. It that is deep. That is deep. So the question is: Has this podcast been a stew or a soup? And we'll leave that to the listeners to figure out. Uh, thank you once again for uh, for listening to the Almost Sideways podcast. Again, please uh, please rate and review if you have not done so already. Let others know about us so that uh, we can be heard by more people. Uh, and we will catch you next time. Until then, have fun watching movies. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.